podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. The Two-Footed Podcast is brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from while keeping your data safe. So, as an example, if you are a UK expat and want access to BBC iPlayer to watch Match of the Day or ITV Hub or all four, but you get that message that says this content is not available in your location, a Liberty Shield VPN gets you around that block, allows you to watch whatever you want on those services while also keeping your data safe. And it goes further than that. It allows you to open up Netflix's entire library by just changing your IP address. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five-star ratings across the board. So go to libertyshield.com right now, use the code EPL25, and get either the hardware package or the software package. The hardware package is a router that you plug into your existing router, and any item you want to change the IP address on, be it your phone or your television, you connect that to the new Liberty Shield router. All other items can remain connected to your existing router. There's also a software package, which is instantly downloadable to your device, and you can get using straight away. Again, libertyshield.com, EPL25 for 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 for 10% off at checkout. And lastly, do remember to check out a tad predictable hosted by Tadiwa. That podcast is on this feed before every Premier League match week. And then the EPL Roundtable hosted by Kevin DeVries on its own EPL Roundtable feed. So just search EPL Roundtable in your podcast device. And that's out after every match week. Now, on with the show. What's good, boys and girls? Two-footed podcast. Today is Thursday. It is the 19th of October. Hope you're all well. Weather update. It's wet. It's very wet. And according to my trusty weather app, which generally is wrong most of the time, uh, it's due to rain quite a bit over the next while. Um, the weather app actually told me on Monday that yesterday and today were going to be sunny and I had great plans for these days and no rain, lots and lots of rain anyway uh, today is questions day so we're going to start with questions and we're going to go first and foremost to Mikhail Campbell sent via Guy Drinkle 
Can you please ask Dave to do a nostalgia pod about the 2002 World Cup and Euro 2004? The nostalgia pods have been thoroughly enjoyable. I will. I will do those. Since I've done 98 and now 2000, I'll do 2002 next week and 2004 the following week, then 2006, and then we'll reassess uh, and we'll go from there. Uh, if you were asked by Ronald Koeman to pick the squad and best starting 11 for the Netherlands, what players would you pick? Also, what do you think of Lewis Ferguson as a player? So we'll start with the second part of that, Lewis Ferguson. I do like him. I, I liked him when he was coming through at Aberdeen. And I remember speaking to Lee Scott about him, and Lee was working for Aberdeen at the time. And congrats to Lee Scott, a friend of the podcast. He has recently joined Southampton as a scout, and I'm sure he'll do very, very well. And also, if you haven't bought his books, please do. Also, on the topic of books, before I go back to Lewis Ferguson, uh, Ryan Baldy, also a friend of the podcast, has a new book out on Arsene Wenger. And it is a triumph, an absolute triumph. Ryan now has three books out and a fourth on the way. And I would highly recommend all of them. So Arsene Who, the story of Wenger's 1998 double, is the new book. I got mine last week. I've already finished it. It's brilliant. The previous two were the next big thing, how football's wonder kids lose their way. It's it's genuinely incredibly good. And the dream factory inside the make or break world of football academies, how he got the access he did, I don't know. It was shortlisted for the Sunday Times Football Book of the Year. I'm not sure what beat it because it was a triumph. And the next one, which I've already pre-ordered, is They Always Score, the unforgettable, improbable, iconic story of Manchester United's treble winners. I already know it's going to be great. It's not due out, I don't think, until early next year. Um, I think it's early next year it's due out, but... I already know it's going to be great because Ryan is brilliant at what he does. And I'm really looking forward to seeing what he does next. I really hope there's more to come because the three I've read have been brilliant. I know that's going to be great. And it doesn't matter who you support. Like, maybe it does. But for me, because I love the nostalgia, because I love looking at, looking back on the great seasons of the past and the great teams of the past, that Arsenal book is tremendous. I I hope he'll consider doing one on the Arsenal Invincibles. Um, I think, I think that would make great reading, but the 98 one, I mean, that's a great team and and reading the book brought up good memories of, of watching that team and, and enjoying that team. And the thing is like, yeah, tribalism gets in the way for a lot of people. But for me, I'm a football fan first and foremost, even before I'm a Liverpool fan. I just, I love the game and I love great teams. I love greatness. So that book is, is tremendous. 
And like I said, the, the Dream Factory is incredible. It genuinely is. Uh, so do support Ryan and support Lee by buying their books if you can. If you can't, so be it. Um, Lewis Ferguson. <laughs> Lewis Ferguson is really good. He's a good all-round midfielder. He's strong in most areas. Now, I like him playing in that central sitting role where he can control the play a bit more, but he can play more advanced. He can play in that sort of number 10 role. And he's from, obviously, from great footballing stock. Uh, his brother, or sorry, his his uncle is Barry Ferguson, former Rangers legend, I suppose. He was captain for a long time. He won he won a bunch of stuff at Rangers. One, two, five league titles, five cups, five league cups. I think I think he's got to be classed the legend. Yeah, I think he's got to be classed the legend. Uh, Scottish football writers, football of the year twice. PFA, Scottish, Scottish PFA. Um, players player of the year as well. Uh, he is the uncle of um, Lewis Ferguson. And that is a footballing family. Um, Barry's older brother, Derek, is the father of Lewis. He's ex-Rangers as well, but maybe better known for his time at Hearts. It's a bit more recent. Um, so Lewis Ferguson's from good stock, and you can tell. He's very technically sound, very intelligent player, has a very, very good understanding of the game. So, yeah, I do I do very much like him. I, I would expect he'll come back to the Premier League within the next year or so. Oh, come to the Premier League, I should say, because he's never played in it, obviously. Um, came through at Hamilton Academical, went to Aberdeen, made his name there. Now, I, I, I prefer him in that, in that midfield controlling role because I think you get more from him. But as an attacking midfielder, I mean, the, the goal return, 8-44 in his first season with Aberdeen, then he only scored three in thirty nine, which was the second season caught up with him. Then he's ten and forty one, sixteen in forty five. It's pretty impressive, um, especially for Aberdeen. Like not one of the the, the two big powers. Joined Bologna seven and thirty three last season is is nothing to sniff at. Uh, one and nine so far this season. A little bit of a slower start, but I think I think he's got real potential to develop. He's only he's he's 24, but I think he's quite a young 24, to be honest. I think he's the type of player whose game will age really well. And I can see him being the type who'll continue to improve till he's 29, 30. So six caps so far, I, I expect he'll I think I think he's gonna potentially hit 70 or 80 for Scotland. Um now the Dutch right um, so let's let's dig into the Dutch national team, and we'll leave their under twenty one team up as well, because some of the players will be in that squad. So, um. What am I looking for here? Players. Okay. Right. 
Current goalkeepers in this past squad, Bart Verbruggen, Nicolaj, Andreas Noppert, not called up, Mark Flecken, Justin Bijlau, Jasper Sillison, Kjell Sherpin, Remco Pasfeer. So Pasfeer would be out straight away. He's, he's too old. He's not good enough. I would be installing Verbruggen as the number one. I think he is an elite prospect with enormous upside. So I would be installing him as my number one without question. Mark Flecken, I think, is a really good backup to have. I think he's very reliable. He's a good shot stopper. Doesn't have a huge amount of international experience, but has a lot of club experience. And then the third goalkeeper, I'm tempted to go for, for Sillison because I think he's he's high character. I like the fact that he went back to NEC to finish out his career. I think that's good. I think it speaks I think it speaks well of him. Um, obviously didn't have a great time at Barca, but was pretty good for Valencia until he lost his spot. I'm tempted to go for him. I do like Justin Bijlau, but it feels like he's kind of stalled in his development. And I really like Kjell Sherpin, and I think I think he's going to have to leave Brighton because obviously Verbruggen is there. It's a shame for Brighton because it would have been great for them if they could have just had both. I'll go for Sillison. Just because I want that international experience, I want that older head, so I'll go with him. Um, We're going to be playing a back three because I think that's what this squad lends itself better to. So we want wing-backs to start with. On the right, we're going to go... Frimpong and Dumfries. On the left, we'll go Matson and Hartman. I've been impressed with Hartman whenever I watched him for Feyenoord. He's made a really good start to life with the, the senior national team. So I think we'll go with him. Now, centre-backs, we want six. Obviously, Van Dijk, and he'll play the middle role. Now, the problem here is that the next three best Dutch centre-backs on form are Botman, Van de Veen, and Aki, in whatever order you want to put them. Van de Veen's in the best form right now. They all are left-footed. So that's that's a slight issue. But I'll put Botman in as the backup to Van Dyke. I'm going to go Van de Ven and Aki then as the two left-sided centre-backs. Right side. Um, I, I don't divine wrench dirty by not picking him. Divine Wrench 
in time will take over from Dumfries as the 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 other right wing back. Um, Gerald Hattles another left footed centre back to keep an eye on. Dutcher just pumping them out. Um, I'm tempted here to go. I mean, De Jong is going to be one. Is he? No, do you know what? He's not. He's not in good enough form. De Jong, Delict is who I'm thinking of. Delict. If I bring Delict, I have to lose either Aki or Van de Ven. Because Botman has to be in the squad. For me, anyway. I don't like Delict on the right side of a back three. I'm assuming I can have it like everybody's fit now. I'm assuming that's what we're going with. Do I go Timber and Delict and leave Gertrude out? Hmm. We'll go Timber for sure. And we'll come back to the second spot. Um, in midfield. Frankie will be in. Um, I really like Kenneth Taylor, so I'm going to have him. I've got to have Ginny Wijnaldum. I think I'm picking five. Yeah, so I'll take Wijnaldum there. Take Wijnaldum. Because I, I need that leadership. I need that presence in the squad. I think I'll take Tay and Coop Miners. Right. So if I've got Frankie and Coop. Frankie and Taylor probably be the starting two. So I like Taylor because he can just sit in behind Frankie and let Frankie play that bit higher. And also just drift and do do different Frankie Dion things. Um, right in attack. Robbie, Malin, Bergvine, Memphis. Xavi Simmons and Gakpo. So we'll say Gakpo and Brobby is the two kind of nine options. Simmons and Memphis as the sort of creative options in the front three who can kind of float as a 10. And then Malin. I want Malin's pace. Do I go Bergvine or do I go Arna Danjuma? Danjuma offers more all round. Hmm. 
Bergvine has that explosive pace. Yeah, I'll go Bergvine. Right, so that's 10, 13, 15, 17, 19, 21, 22. That gives me 22. Um, I'm going to go Gertruda over Delict. And part of the reason is he's hugely versatile. And if I have him, do I actually need Denzel Dumfries? Because I don't think I do. I might leave, you know what? I might just leave Dumfries out. Take Gertruda as sort of a right back who can also cover centre back and he can play in midfield. And then I'll get Delict into the squad. So I do think, like, I, I don't like Delict on the right of a back three, but I do think when he's on, he's still a very good defender. He's just not become what he should have become. Our starting 11 would be Verbruggen in goal, Frimpong and, and Matson as wingbacks, Timber, Van Dyke, and Van de Ven as a back three. Taylor and Frankie as a double pivot in midfield. Gakpo was the nine. Daniel Mallon to his right. Memphis to his left. Because I want Memphis in the team. And Memphis having that freedom. Memphis and Memphis Gakpo and Mallon can all play all three positions in attack. And Memphis and Gakpo can also play behind. So you could play Gakpo behind Memphis and Mallon or Memphis behind Gakpo and Mallon. Then I get Brobby, Simmons and Bergvine as game changers off the bench. I've Wijnaldum and Coop Miners as midfield depth. Gertruda can come in if I need an extra ball winner in there. He can also play right wing back. Hartson is the other left wing back. I think if, if I needed... If if Timber was out, I think I'd be more likely to play Gertruda or even Aki on the right over Delict. So Delict, in a way, is the third choice option in the middle. But I want him in the squad, and then Flecken and Sillison. So that's a twenty-three man squad, which is what's standard for an international tournament. And um, I know the midfield is not spectacular, but I don't need it to be. I need Frankie to be Frankie. I need the other midfielder to just be fundamentally sound and sit and hold that midfield together for me. And if he can do that, I can launch forward those wingbacks who are both electric. Timber and Van de Ven, you're not going to find flanking centre-backs better suited to covering large swaths of space, and then Van Dyke can cover the middle. The question for me is, do I get enough goals? And I think Gakbo and Malin, the way he's playing right now, can be reliable. Memphis is the wild card here. If I get good Memphis, I think I can win an international tournament with that group of players. If I don't, then I need Javi Simmons to really step up. 
anyone hard done by um, of players that have been called up in the last 12 months? Um, Matt's Weefer, I mean, Matt's Weefer, I picked Kenneth Taylor over him. I prefer Kenneth Taylor. But Matt Weaver is really good, and he he's probably the one who's hard done by here. Yeah, Owen Windell. I mean, he just hasn't developed, so that's why he's lost out. Kenny Tete, I'm just not keen on. Rick Carsdrup, I'm not keen on. Mitchell Backer, I'm not a big fan of. Divine Wrench, uh, in time, I think gets in. Pascal Struik is so unfortunate because I think he's got good potential, but he's another left-footed centre-back. Um, I needed Ginny. I don't want Berghaus in the squad. I don't want Davy Class in the squad. I don't, don't want Jordy Classy in the squad. Coop Miners would probably be aggrieved at being left out. But that's... Him and him and v- Weifer are probably the two who could feel stiffed. And Stefan de Vrij is the one I, I feel bad about leaving out because, again, great leader, really good dressing room presence. But I think I've got a really strong dressing room anyway with with Virgil, with Sillison, with De Ligt, with Frankie. I've got Coop Miners in the squad. What am I saying? I've got Coop Miners in the squad. So that's fine. Do I leave Coop Miners out and go for Vifer? I think I might. Oh, I think I will. I think I'll leave... No, Coop Miners is a better player. Coop Miners is a better player. So I'm, I'm going to leave Matt Viefer out and I'm going to go Kenneth Taylor, Frankie, Coop Miners and Ginny Wijnaldum as my midfield. So there we go. That is that. On to Discord. Uh, have you watched the Beckham documentary yet? If so, what are your thoughts? And also, if you can give your overall take on him and his career... And if you think he reached his intended level, or if there's maybe more he could have reached. I haven't actually watched it yet, and I'm not really sure why. Um, as for Beckham, the player, I think in his prime, I think he was overrated. I think historically, he has become underrated. For me, Beckham was never world-class. I think he was a level just below world-class at his very, very apex. But he was an outstanding footballer. He was consistent. He was always available. You look at his career from 95-96, 40, 49, 50, 55, 48, 46, 43, 52, 45, 38, which is a low, 41, and then 31 in his last season at Rail. But at Rail, it wasn't that he was injured. just that he was out of favour. That's why he played 38 and 41 games. He still played 38 and 31 games. Um, Clearly made a business decision in 2007 to move to America. Now, he was 32, so it's not like he was a kid. But he could have absolutely played in Europe for another few years at the highest level, which he proved during his loan spells with Milan and PSG. Um, 
the PSG one was a bit regrettable, but at Milan he was still solid. But he was very productive as well. As well, if you look at his goals from ninety five, ninety six until he left United, eight, twelve, eleven, nine, eight, nine, sixteen, and eleven. Now, obviously, a lot of them are set pieces, but he was also he's an incredible passer of the ball. Better, much better long passer than short passer, but a great, great long passer of the ball. Arguably, the best crosser we've ever seen. Not not nearly as good a free kick taker as he's made out. And that was always one of the areas he was significantly overrated in. Beckham was an incredible corner taker. He was a great crosser. But from free kicks, his accuracy wasn't great. He would sail a lot of them over the bar. Now, he scored more than his fair share, of course. But he took way more than his fair share. I do think he's become historically underrated because I think people think of Beckham and just think the brand. They think, well, he was just a set-piece merchant and yada, yada. But like Beckham off the ball was an absolute monster. And he was a much more intelligent footballer than people have ever given him credit for. There's an idea of David Beckham as a bimbo because of how he looks and because he has that kind of soft-spoken voice. Beckham's an intelligent guy. And Beckham has, to his credit, branded himself incredibly well. There's no doubt David Beckham, if he's not already, will be a billionaire. He was an enormous part of incredible success at Manchester United. Six league titles, two FA Cups, and a Champions League. He won La Liga with Real. He won two MLS Cups, two Supporters Shields, and he won the French League with PSG, though, again, maybe would have been better for him if he hadn't played there. He just wasn't very good. At that point, he was was, was an old man. He was 37, 38. Tremendously good at the things he was good at and worked as hard as anyone in the areas he was bad at. It's like he couldn't tackle to save his life, but he worked on it. And by the the end of his tenure at United, Beckham was a really good tackler. He was great defensively, like tremendous defensively. Gary Neville never got left 2v1. Beckham never walked off a pitch having not run himself into the ground for United. And I know things started to alter for him when he met Posh and whatever else, but I don't think for one second that he ever that he ever put in less than complete effort for United or for England. Now for England, I do think he struggled to replicate his best form. I think he needed a manager like Ferguson to get the best out of him because I think Ferguson Beckham for me was a confidence player as well. And Ferguson is the best man manager that I've ever seen. Um, With England, I'm not sure he had the same belief in himself or in his teammates. Like that United group were so close. They were so tight. They had telepathic understandings. 
I think he missed having a gigs as well for England because one of the, the best things Beckham did on a football field was drop in to, say, a right wing-back position, pick up a quick throw-out from Peter Schmeichel or a, a header from Yap Stam, take it on the half-turn, knock it out into his path, and without even looking up, drive that ball 70 yards to the opposite side of the field towards the opposite corner flag, knowing that Ryan Giggs was going to get there. That was the most devastating counter-attacking weapon any team in Europe had in the 90s, was Beckham to Giggs. And if you look at Ryan Giggs's career assists, and focus on... 95 to 2003 when Beckham left, I guarantee a high percentage of those come from Beckham over the back shoulder of the right back, gigs onto it and gigs with the whipped cross or the cutback, either for Colin York or Sheringham and Solskjaer in the box or Scholes or even Keane or even Beckham arriving on the edge of the box to get on the end of that cutback. Beckham's career assist numbers don't reflect how many goals he created with passes like that. Or that lovely little dinked ball he used to play between left-back and centre-back for Dwight York to move on to. And then York would either shoot himself or more often he'd square it for Andy Cole for the tap-in. The, the assist numbers get put held against Beckham that he doesn't have, you know, Sesk or KDB season tallies, he created more goals than than most. Um, yeah, he was a, he was an outstanding player. Like I said, my my definition of world class is is higher than most. I, I hold th- those words mean something to me. Like I saw someone d- d- describe Declan Rice as world class the other day. I, I couldn't help but laugh. They were talking about his seven out of ten performance against Italy the other night calling it phenomenal. It was just a good performance. He didn't do anything spectacular. There was three or four actions he made that that Jordan Henderson couldn't make and everything else was very Henderson-esque. Declan Rice is nowhere close to world-class. I've saw saw the same person say William Saliba is world-class. William Saliba is not even the best centre-back at Arsenal. William Saliba is still very young, very raw and quite error-prone. In no way is he world-class. This is what happens when people try to be real clever on Twitter and present themselves as those, you know, pseudo-academic types who are deep thinkers of the game and they value from centre-backs ball-playing far more than actual defending. I've seen the same person try and claim that Saliba is better than Ruben Diaz. Ruben Diaz is levels above William Saliba. Levels and levels above William Saliba. The mark of a great defender is how great they defend, not how good they are on the ball. That comes after. Yap Stam was rudimentary on the ball. He's one of the 10 best centre-backs of all time. He's one of the three or four best centre-backs to ever play in the Premier League. Ricardo Carvalho was fairly rudimentary on the ball. He was decent. He was better than Stam. But he's also one of the best centre-backs the game has ever seen. 
Same with Cannavaro. These weren't great ball-playing centre-backs. These were just great defenders who happened to play decently on the ball. Um, anyway, so that's Beckham. Uh, Isaac Gilding, Tuesday power rankings are a great feature. Glad people seem to be enjoying them, so I'll keep going. Left back next week. Uh, David Townsend, I asked this on Twitter before it changed to X and didn't see or hear a reply. Well, apologies for that. That is uh, mea culpa on that one. Uh, who would you say are the best referees in the Premier League? Oh, 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 oh dear. Um, right. I quite like Samuel Barrett. I think he's a decent referee. Now, we're talking about a very, very low bar here. But I think Samuel Barrett manages a game very well. Now, he has managed more in the Championship this year than the Premier League. I think he's only done one or two Premier League games. But I happened to watch uh, him referee Fulham, Sheffield Sheffield United last weekend and thought he did a very good job. Um, Peter Banks is good. Actually, I would say right now, Peter Banks is probably the guy I'd have top of the pile. I thought he refereed that West Ham-Newcastle game brilliantly. Um, so I would probably go with him as my my number one referee right now in the Premier League. Uh, Barrett, though, I do like. Robert Jones. I'm just looking at a list of them. Jones. Um, Do you know, as I look at the list of games that Robert Jones has refereed, I what I look for is is that a game where there was controversy? And I don't think there's much controversy in any of the recent games he's done. No, I don't think there's much controversy here at all. So Robert Jones gets a tick of approval. Um, Yeah, I would go Peter Banks, Samuel Barrett and Robert Jones then as my top three in the league right now. Uh, John Brooks, I'm not hugely keen on. Atwell is terrible. Cooter's... Kud is a dreadful VAR. He's not a bad referee, to his credit. He's not a bad referee. He's dreadful as VAR. Andy Madley's awful. Uh, Craig Paulson, he gets up in his own feelings. He's not a terrible referee, but he's not a good referee either. Anthony Taylor and Michael Oliver are dreadful. I know they're the top two in the country, but they're both dreadful. Um... Yeah, I go Peter Banks one, Barrett two, and Jones three. Um, Thomas Brammel's another one I do like. Now, again, he's refereed more championship than Premier League this season, but I, again, he's someone I think just goes about the job the right way. I, I don't think there's a lot of fuss with him, you know. And, and this is when I when I watch a game, I don't want to see the referee. I don't want to think about the referee. 
I just want him to do his job and not not be involved in the game. Um, yeah, he's refereed four championship games and two Premier League games. He did referee Liverpool Bournemouth, and he did give that penalty, that, that red card, to Alexis McAllister. But for my money, he was let down by the VAR. I thought the red card was justified at the time from his angle. And remember, the rule is clear and obvious error. I don't think from his angle he made a clear and obvious error. So Thomas Bramall would complete my top four. Um, Isaac Gilding, England didn't make it to Euro 2008. Had they qualified, how do you think they would done? Can you make a first 11 you think would have gone far in the tournament? Okay. Uh, Euro 2008. I will say this. They wouldn't have won it because nobody was beating Spain. Nobody was beating that Spanish team uh, that year. Now, let's jump into the qualifying. Where are we? England were in. Group E. should be ashamed of themselves not getting out of this group. Croatia, good, not great. Russia, definitely not great. England finished third. Level points with Israel. Um, okay. Okay. Let's have a look at the rest of that tournament and see. Well, first of all, we, we might might as well try and find England's squad. England's squad. Yeah. This should give me a list of all English players who were in the squad that at that time. Um. You would have had Rio and Terry. They'd have been the starting centre-backs. Micah Richards, I think, had sort of taken the right-back spot at that point, and then he just gave it up very quickly. Ashley Cole was at left-back. So you're going to be in a strong situation there. Right, goalkeepers. Paul Robinson, David James, Chris Kirkland... Ben Foster, Scott Carson, a young Joe Hart, and Joe Lewis, who never actually played for England. These were the goalkeepers who were called up to England's squads that at that time. So Robinson was number one. He was was the best of them at that point. Kirkland was the most talented and is one of the great lost goalkeepers. And then, I mean, Foster is probably the, the third keeper you'd want to go with. Um, see, at centre-back, if everybody's fit, it's Ledley King and Jonathan Woodgate for me all day. However, Saul Campbell at that point is only 32. He had declined a bit, though. Don't think I'd want Michael Dawson. Wouldn't want Stephen Taylor. Wes Brown at right back, definitely a strong option. But realistically, it's it's Terry and Ferdinand. 
So Rio, Ferdinand, Cole at left back. We're going to go Wes Brown at right back because he's more reliable, more consistent than uh, more consistent than Micah Richards. Um, left back depth, you've got Wayne Bridge, which is strong. Centre backs, you've got great depth. You've got Carragher, Woodgate, King, like I said. You've got Michael Dawson. Uh, Brown can play there. You've got Jaggy Elka. Um, right backs. Gary Neville is still taking around, but he had the bad ankle, so no. Phil Neville would be a no. Glenn Johnson would be a definitely no. Micah Richards would, would have been my backup. Now, in midfield, Carrick is an obvious. Hargreaves, a fit, is, is definitely in. Gerard is definitely in. Beckham's 31. Uh, 31, 30. No, he's not. He's 32 in 2007. So do I go, do I want Beckham? At that point, Beckham had declined. If we go diamond midfield, Carrick deepest, Lampard as the 10, Hargreaves and Gerrard as the engine. And if Hargreaves isn't there, we'll bring in Gareth Barry. We've also got Jermaine Genus and Scott Parker. Scott Parker, probably the best replacement for Hargreaves. Not as good, but, you know, similar type of skill set. Uh, Joe Cole is the backup 10. Uh, so pretty strong there. And then in attack, you've got Rooney. Owen is, is injured and passed his best at this point. Defoe, Andy Johnson, Peter Crouch. Dean Ashton, it's such a shame. The ankle, he, he would have been tremendous, I think, if not for the ankle. What a shame. Uh, Heskey still knocking about. Darren Bent was young and unproven at that point. Uh, David Nugent and Gab- Gabby Bonlaho will be a no. Uh, we'll go Rooney and we'll go Defoe, I think, as a front two. Rooney can can drop off Defoe's movement. I think that would be quite good. Lampard then as the third man runner. Gerard can handle the width on the right. I don't need width on the left because I've got Ashley Cole. So in a way... In possession, I'm going Brown, Ferdinand, Terry, Gerard, Carrick, Hargreaves, Cole, Lampard, and Rooney, and then Defoe. So out of possession, it's a diamond midfield. In possession, it becomes like a 3-4-2-1. I think that would have worked quite well. I would have still brought Beckham for depth and quality uh, you'd have Joe Cole you'd bring Owen because he'd still get you a goal and you'd probably bring, bring Peter Crouch because he was just so awkward to play against um, you'd be bringing Scott Parker like I said bringing Gareth Barry bring Micah Richards you'd bring King Woodgate Carragher is a fifth centre-back who can also play right-back and also play holding midfield. And uh, and Wayne Bridge, obviously, is back up left-back. And then Robinson, Kirkland and Foster would have been my three keepers. I think it's a strong squad. I think the fact they didn't qualify is absolutely embarrassing for them. Um, so where would they have 
So let's let's just take that they got in instead of Russia. So Russia went into Group D with Spain, Sweden, and Greece, right? So, uh, close that. Group stage, we want Group D. Russia finished second in that group, and I think England would have finished second to Spain. I think England would have lost to Spain, beat Greece, and beat the Swedes. So that puts us into the knockouts, and they would have faced the Netherlands. And I think England would have beaten the Netherlands. It wasn't a particularly vintage Netherlands team. Which would have put them in a semi-final against Spain again. And I think they go out at that point. Now, I think that that's bad organisation. That Russia and Spain are in the same group and then meet again in the semi-finals. Because I actually feel like if England had been put in the other half of the draw, if the Netherlands-Russia winner takes on, let's just say, the winner of Croatia-Turkey or the winner of Portugal-Germany, I think they advance to the final, Netherlands or Russia. So I think England would beat Netherlands, beat Germany as it would have been, and then got into the final where they would have lost to Spain. Either way, their World Cup or their, their European Championships was ending with Spain. The biggest problem with that England team, for my money, is the division in the in the camp. The United players only spoke to each other. Now, there was less of them at this point, but still. The Chelsea players were very clicky. And then all the rest were sort of left together. Now... The biggest issue, without question, is the fact that Steve McLaren was the manager and he just wasn't in any way ready for that job. He had been an assistant at Derby County under Jim Smith. He was very highly regarded. He gets the job with United. He takes over when Brian Kidd leaves to go to Blackburn to become manager. And he's very, very important of part of United winning that travel. Stays there the following couple of seasons. And then he takes the Middlesbrough job. And he did a pretty good job at Middlesbrough. Like he won silverware and he got to UEFA Cup final. So, He did a pretty good job at Borough. But he wasn't ready for the England job. And he only got 18 games in charge, which tells you he wasn't ready. He won 50% of them. Went to 20, did very well. Disaster at Wolfsburg, disaster at Forest. Back to 20, did okay. Did well at Derby. And I thought he should have stayed there. Took the Newcastle job, was a disaster. Didn't do as well with Derby the second time and was last seen as manager of QPR. Um, he's now back at United um, in a coaching capacity, which which he's very, very good at. But he was the biggest issue. He just wasn't ready to be the England manager. And everybody remembers the Wally with the Brolly. It's a shame because it, it completely changed people's perception of him. 
Um, and I, I think it, it ruined his career in a lot of ways. But look, the guy got to manage England, and that's the the pinnacle of the game for an English manager. So, you know, it is what it is. Um, AMK2889 randomly came across a compilation of all the goals John Carew scored in the Champions League. Uh, I think I, oh, this question was sent in yesterday. I talked about him on the pod yesterday, so I think I've already answered your question. In terms of John Carew, the other question is, what are your, what are some of your favorite debut goals that someone has scored in league play as well as a major tournament such as the Champions League European Cup? Oh God, I I genuinely would need to sit down and go through that. That off the top of my head, I couldn't tell you because it's hard to remember when people made their actual Champions League debut. Rooney scored a belter for United against Fenerbahce on his Champions League debut. So I think he scored a hat trick, but he scored one absolute belter that's always kind of stuck in my head. But I'll come back to you on that. I'll, I'll come back to you on that. I'll, I'll have a think about that. And I'll come back to it. Uh, not today, but I'll, I'll have a think about it. Um, last questions then come from Alex. So, can you make... Oh, he's got two, actually. Can you make an all-time Premier League eleven without using any players that have played for a team currently in the Premier League? Okay. I'll, I'll, let me think on that one. And can you make an 11 from the Anfield Index, EPL Index team, either based on your knowledge of them as players or their perceived strengths? Um, okay. Well, let's start with let's start with the Anfield Index one. So I'm putting myself in at centre-back. And then we can start the actual team around. So, um... I'm putting Greg Hopcroft next to me at, at centre-back because he's enormous. He's about 6'5". So he'll win all the aerial stuff and I'll just sweep around him. So that's perfect. Uh, in midfield, Jan Mulby, who is an every-week podcaster, so he, he qualifies. He absolutely qualifies. And we're next to him, we're going to go with his brother-in-arms. We're going to go with Trev Downey. Carl Matchett will roam off the right wing as a bit of a playmaker for us there. Kenny Dogleash has podcasted many's the time on Anfield Index. So he is absolutely in. And with him up front, I'm going to put... I'm going to put Dan Kennett because he's tall. And that's the only thing I've got to go on. Uh, I'm going to put Simon Brundish at right back because he is an incredibly fit man and can run up and down that right wing and, and do all the, the dog work behind Matchett, who just won't bother his arse. Um, Harry Setti will slot in on the left wing. 
to bring us some silky skills. Going to go with the very reliable and robust Mo Chatra at left back. And the man with the safest pair of hands in the index sphere, producer extraordinaire Guy Drinkle will be our goalkeeper. Don't know if he has the height. Not sure what height Guy is. I think he's about six foot. Could be wrong. We're going to go with Guy. Um, Yeah. Now, I've left out a bunch of people, obviously. Uh, I've left out Eddie Gibbs, who I think Eddie Gibbs is our director of football. I think Gags Tandon will be the manager. On the bench, we'll have Dan Rhodes. We'll have the wise old head of Jim Boardman. Jim might be a bit too old. We might leave Jim out. Jim can be a coach. Jim can be a coach. He'd be good at that. Be good at calming people down. So we'll put him in as an assistant. Uh, Rhodesy, Andy Wales. Got to have a Welsh presence. So we'll double up on that then. Actually, that will be because Rhodesy lives in Wales, or he used to anyway. We'll also throw in uh, Harry Welchie, Mark Roberts. So we're all we're all quite old now, so I'm not sure this would be a very good football team, but we'll give it a go. Um, Rhodes, Wales, Roberts. I'm trying to think of Dave Davis. Dave Davis will be like the utility guy. You can just drop him in anywhere and he just adapts to it. So we're going to go with him. That's our five subs. And then overseeing all of this, the sporting CEO, the self-styled face that runs the place is going to be Nina Kauser overseeing the lot and telling us we're all useless. She doesn't actually do that, but you get on the wrong side of her, she might. Um, so that'll be that. Um, right. An 11 of players who played for teams that are not currently in the Premier League. This one is going to require a bit of thought. Um, I'm going to take a break, and when I come back, I'm going to have an answer for you. So I'll see you after this. Right, welcome back. Now, full disclosure, it's been 30 seconds for you. It's been about 15 minutes since the end of part one while I've tried to put this team together for Alex. Now... I've picked these players based on how good they were at their peak 
not so much how good they were in the Premier League, but most of them did play very, very well in the Premier League. So, goalkeeper, Brazilian international, Inter Milan legend, Champions League winner, Julio Cesar. Played for QPR in 2012 until 2014. Uh, A total of, well, he actually went on loan in the 2014 season because they got relegated. Played a total of 27 games to them. He was one of the few bright spots in that relegation season in 2012-13. So he is our right back. Sorry, our goalkeeper. At right back, uh, I've mentioned this guy a few times in recent weeks when talking about different tournaments. Uh, 116 caps for Sweden. Spent most of his career in his homeland. But spent quite a bit of time in England as well. Played for Sheffield Wednesday in the early seasons of the Premier League and then had two spells at Coventry later on. Roland Nielsen, outstanding right back. So we've got him. In the middle, it's a one-season wonder. The best Spanish defender of all time, Fernando Hierro. One season with Bolton Wanderers, 2004-2005. Next to him... Someone that played with him for Real Madrid, Spain, and Bolton. Also spent time with Ipswich. Is Ivan Campo. And then completing my defence, Brazilian international, World Cup winner. Nine games for Middlesbrough in the Premier League. Claudio Ibrahim Vaslil, better known as Branco. One of the hardest strikers of a ball in the history of the game. A tremendous left back in his prime. By the time he got to Burra, he was well past his best. But I've picked him based on he was he's the best left back I come up with. And in his prime, he was excellent. Uh, in midfield, I've gone for a double pivot. So this first guy played for Wimbledon, Charlton, Middlesbrough. Southampton, Blackpool, and Charlton again, and then uh, AFC Wimbledon, as they are now. Jason Yule, very, very underrated player, someone that's often forgot about. Jason Yule was a really good Premier League midfielder for a long, long time. And from, I would argue, 98 to about 04, was someone that deserved a move to a bigger club and never got that move. Jason Yule was tremendous. Uh, with Wimbledon, he came through their academy, established himself in the 97-98 season. The following season, which was his first full season, scored 10 Premier League goals from midfield. Wimbledon were relegated the next year. He could have left, he stayed. He scored 19 goals in the championship from midfield. Got his move to Charlton, 11, 10, and 10 in his next three seasons. And then injuries took their toll, and he really started to tail off. But he had a second burst of life with Southampton from 07 to 09. Jason Ewell deserved... He had a good career. There's no doubt he had a good career. He deserved more. He deserved more. A very, very good player. Always overlooked. 
always underrated. Next to him, this guy played for Blackburn and Stoke. Has since played for Sevilla and Roma and Galatasaray. He's now playing in Turkey with Konyaspor after a spell in Saud in Qatar rather with Al Rayyan. Uh, won twenty caps for the French national team. Was in the World Cup squad. Stephen and Zonzi. Stephen and Zonzi is always forgotten. He was a really good player, a really really good ball winner. A little bit reckless in his early days and got a bit of a reputation as someone that just hacked others. But Stephen Nzonzi could play. So he's sitting in next to Yule. He'll hold my midfield together. I've gone 4 2 3 1 here. So the three behind the one. This guy spent two seasons with Bolton and had a short spell with Blackburn. Prior to that, Monaco, PSG, Inter Milan, Kaiserslautern, 82 caps for France, World Cup winner, European Championship winner, Yuri Jorkaev. One of my favorite players. In the number, he's going to play off the right, but he's going to tuck in a little bit. In the number 10 position, still to this day, this is the most. Holy shit, how have they gotten him signing in the history of the Premier League? Janino. Three spells at Middlesbrough. Played for Sao Paulo, Vasco da Gama, Atletico Madrid, Flamengo, Celtic, Palmieres. 49 caps for Brazil. An absolute genius of a footballer. Incredibly fun to watch incredibly fun to watch and him him signing for Borough was when it became very clear that the Premier League was very different to the old First Division that money was just in far greater supply such a fun player to watch one of my all time favourite Premier League players a shame he didn't play in the Premier League for more of his career. Um, but I loved him. Absolutely brilliant. Off the left, this guy normally, well, this guy predominantly plays as a nine, but I'm going to use his pace off the left and he can get forward and join my striker. Jamie Vardy seems an obvious one. He's only played for Leicester in the Premier League. They're gone now. So Jamie Vardy. And my number nine is Fabrizio Ravinelli. Because again, I've picked it based on the best player. Had a season with Borough, had about a season and a half with Derby. I loved Fabrizio Ravinelli. Loved him at Juve. He was a goal machine for Borough. Like, comes into the league, scores 16 and 33 in, in the league. Scores 31 and 48 in all competitions. It's outrageous. Left at the start of the following year to join Marseille. Would go from there to Lazio. Would come back to Derby. Got relegated with Derby as he had been with Borough, but actually stayed and played in the championship or played half the season or so. I think he had a few injuries, but I loved Ravinelli. So he gets in. Also spent 
a bit of time with Dundee, which is just bizarre. So that's my 11. Now, I did consider trying to sneak Robert Yarney in as my left back because he was at Coventry, but only for about two weeks and he never actually played a game. So uh, didn't want to force the issue with him. Two lads who are very unfortunate not to have made this team. Mark Bright, first and foremost. Now, he did play for Crystal Palace for six years. But he left Crystal Palace at the start of the Premier League. Now, he might have played... Did he play for Crystal Palace in the... He played five games for Crystal Palace in the Premier League. So actually, he doesn't count. Because his other Premier League appearances were for Sheffield Wednesday and for Charlton. And he was really good. Really, really good. Sheffield Wednesday, people don't remember how good they were in the early years of the Premier League. Like, when they had David Hurst and Mark Bright up front, that was a really, really good Premier League strike pairing. Mark Bright had obviously played with um, Ian Wright at, at Palace and they were incredible together. But him and Hurst were great together as well. Uh, Hurst just had so many injury issues, but he was he was a, a bulldozer up front. And Bright was super intelligent, really, really tech, technically gifted. Big, big fan. Uh, but yeah. He played five games for Palace, so unfortunately doesn't get in. This guy did not play in the Premier League, or for, did did not play for a team that's currently in the Premier League during the Premier League era, and that's Dean Holdsworth. Now he did play for Brentford, but that was he did leave the summer of ninety two. He left before the Premier League era started. So he played for Wimbledon, he played for Bolton, he played for Coventry, he played for Derby, all during the Premier League era. But his time at Brentford was pre-Premier League. Now, if that rules him out, it rules him out, but he wasn't in the team anyway. And then I've got three players that I, I thought of straight away and thought they're definitely going to be in the mix here and then was scuppered on each and every one of them. So Mark Viduka was the first one. Leeds and Borough, I remembered, and obviously Celtic. I completely forgot he ended his career at Newcastle. So that ruled him out. Benito Carboni, who arrived over as part of the influx of high-talented, questionably attitude players that came over in the mid-90s. Sheffield Wednesday, Bradford, Derby and Borough. I remember him at all of them. I didn't remember he had a season with Aston Villa. It didn't go well. He fell out with pretty much everybody. But he did help them get to an FA Cup final. He was a really good player. He was really fun. And this guy, I thought, was going to be one that I could sneak in and go on a bit of a tangent about how underrated he was and what a good player he was. Kevin Gallon, who was brilliant for QPR alongside Les Ferdinand, Trevor Sinclair, Andy Peacock. That was a really, really fun, um, really fun QPR team. 
Then he played for Huddersfield. He played for Barnsley. He went back to QPR. He played for MK Dons. But I'd completely forgotten he played for Luton late in his career. He was in his mid to late 30s. Luton were a League Two team and then a Conference League team when he played there. But now Luton are a Premier League team, so he doesn't count. But Kevin Gallon was really, really good. And him and Ferdinand were a major, major problem for all teams to try and deal with. So there you go. There's my there's my team and there's a couple of other players uh, thrown in for, you know, the bits of nostalgia and whatever else. Uh, Neymar, on to news and gossip, I should say, but Neymar has a torn ACL and meniscus tear and he will have surgery and will will be out for a long, long time, probably 10 months or so, maybe longer. He's obviously just moved to Saudi. Um, I don't know that he'll care all that much that he's going to miss football because I don't think he cares about football all that much. If he did, he wouldn't have had the career that he's had. I saw someone earlier on say that uh, Neymar and Hazard had been failed by football because they'd been fouled too often. The game is so soft now. Like, it's such nonsense. Players like Ronaldinho were kicked far more than them and never complained, just got on with it. Cristiano, in his early years, was butchered. Repeatedly, Messi the same. They came in for far harsher treatment. And by the time they were getting that treatment, the rules were changing heavily to protect forts. It's such garbage. Hazard didn't look after himself and Neymar didn't care about football. He cared about having a good life and partying. That's why his career turned out the way it did. So I have sympathy for him because no one likes to see a player get injured. But the idea that he was failed by anybody, utter, utter garbage. Uh, Mohamed Salah has spoken and said that humanity must prevail in the Israel-Gaza conflict and uh, there's a there's a, a small portion of people that want him to speak harsher on it. What he said is right. What he said is right. Um, Sandro Tonali, Newcastle have confirmed that Sandro Tonali is being investigated by the Italian Prosecutor's Office and the Italian Football Federation in relation to alleged illegal betting activity. So. <clears throat> Um, this all started with Nicolo Fagioli, Fagioli of Juve. He was the one being investigated. Uh, he admitted what he did. He's been banned for seven months. It was originally a year, but five months were suspended. And he was fined 12,500 euros. He's also agreed to a therapy plan for at least six months to tackle his gambling problem. I think he actually went to them and said, I've got a gambling problem. This is what's going on. It seems like Tonali, though, might have been the spark for Fagioli's issues. Uh, Nicolo Zaniolo is also being investigated, and we'll see what happens with him. But Tonali is facing a, a fairly hefty, hefty ban, so uh, we might not be seeing him play again in the Premier League for quite a while. Um what else do England have what it takes to win Euro 2024? They do. Don't think they will, though. Right, gossip. Liverpool have joined Chelsea and Arsenal in the chase for Victor Osman. 
if I could be certain of his of his health, if I could be certain of his health, I I, I would love it. I would genuinely love it. I think you could play him and Darwin together. I really do. I think you'd need to move to front two, but I think you could play him and Darwin together. You could also use Darwin as your trump card to do a bit of a swapsy. Uh, maybe send Darwin and Diaz to Napoli for Osman and Kavicha. Liverpool would have to throw in money, obviously. But the issue is, well, last season he played 32 games in the league. 39 in all competitions, though, so I mean, that's low. If he can stay fit, he's he's incredible. As an all-round nine, he's just phenomenal. Um, Lionel Messi has quashed speculation. He will leave into Miami on loan to play for another club once the MLS season ends. Of course he won't. He's 36 now. Let him have his break. Into Miami hope to bring Luis Suarez to the club. Thiago Silva has hinted at a return to Fluminense next year. It's it's way beyond time for him to move move back to Brazil. Uh, Borussia Dortmund are ready to offer Jadon Sancho an escape route from Manchester United in January. Bayern Munich are considering an emergency move for Socrates, uh, Socrates, uh, the former Arsenal defender, as they try to minimise the impact of a growing injury crisis. Borussia Mönchengladbach have triggered an option to extend Manu Kone's contract for a year. Newcastle are weighing up a move for Victor Boniface. I doubt it. He plays the same position as Isak, and I don't think that works as a two. Maybe it would, but I don't think it would. Not in how Eddie Howe plays anyway. Bayern Munich are confident of tying Jamal Musiala down to a new contract. Arsenal loanee David Rea said he would be interested in moving to La Liga with the Spain goalkeeper looking unlikely to return to Brentford. I'd be stunned if he doesn't stay at Arsenal. Uh, former West Ham forward, Paolo Di Canio has revealed he turned down the chance to join Roberto Mancini's coaching setup with Saudi Arabia. Okay, odd. Um, odd, very odd. England legend Chris Waddle could be making a remarkable comeback at the age of 62 with the world's second oldest club. What's this about? Chris Waddle tipped for shock return at the age of 62. What? So this is Sheffield FC. Oh, Hallam. No. What team is this? Oh, it is Hallam FC. Yeah, it's Hallam FC. Um, I, 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 I don't know. I don't know. I think Waddle played there before, didn't he? I think he came out of retirement once already to play there. Uh, Chris Waddle. If I'm not mistaken, he did. He did. He played for them in 2013-14 for one game. At that point, like he's well into his 50s. He'd been retired for 11 years. Came on as a substitute at half time. They got beaten 6 2. He then signed a contract for a year and then didn't play for them again. Does he live in the area? Is that what it is? Uh, Rangers have approached Brighton's head of recruitment, Sam Jewell, who is behind 
some of the Seagulls' biggest signings, but he's not, though. Brighton's genius head of recruitment formally approached and considered quitting club. This is just nonsense. This is like when Win Stanley went to Chelsea and he was a genius behind all the big signings. It's just he's not responsible for the signings there. It's as simple as that. People need to do the research on how this guy, Patrick Austin Hardy, is a US sports journalist making up random nonsense about Brighton. Good stuff. Uh, people need to do the research on how Brighton do their recruitment. And that's it. That's all I've got today, folks. Thank you as always. I will see you all tomorrow. Take care. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.